Hey, welcome back to NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Interview enough authors and ask, oh, you know, why did you choose this? Or why did that character do that? And you're bound to hear an answer that's some variation of a, oh, the characters just told me that's where they wanted to go. <laughs> Not gonna lie, as a reporter, it's kind of a frustrating answer most times. But when author Ruth Ozeki talks about hearing her character's voices in her conversation with NPR host Scott Simon, it actually makes sense. In her novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, books have voices of their own as a boy learns to navigate his grief over the loss of a parent. This message comes from NPR sponsor Live Right, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Benny O hears things. Things have spoken to him since he was 13 and his father died. As Ruth Ozeki writes near the opening of her new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, books are especially talkative. Shh, listen. That's my book and it's talking to you. Can you hear it? It's okay if you can't, though. It's not your fault. Things speak all the time, but if your ears aren't attuned, you have to learn to listen. You can start by using your eyes, because eyes are easy. Look at all the things around you. What do you see? A book, obviously. And obviously the book is speaking to you. So try something more challenging. The chair you're sitting on? The pencil in your pocket? The sneaker on your foot? Still can't hear? Then get down on your knees and put your head to the seat. Or take off your shoe and hold it to your ear. No, wait. If there's people around, they'll think you're mad. So try it with the pencil first. Pencils have stories inside them, and they're safe as long as you don't stick the point in your ear. Just hold it next to your head and listen. Can you hear the wood whisper, the ghost of the pine, the mutter of lead? Wow. Ruth Ozeki, uh, the novelist and filmmaker, also teaches creative writing at Smith College, joins us now from Massachusetts. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Young boy loses his father, starts hearing things talk. It's tempting to call that just a grief reaction, isn't it? People, after a grievous loss, start to hear things sometimes. And and I certainly did, too. After my dad died, I heard my dad's voice calling my name. And, you know, I'd be doing something random like washing the dishes or or folding the laundry. And behind me, just to the right, I I would hear him clear his throat and uh, call my name. And I'd whip around and he wouldn't be there. So it was experiencing the loss and the grief all over again. Yeah. In a sense, is that where this novel begins? I think that is where it begins. That that happened for about a year after he died. And then I kind of forgot about it for a long time. And meanwhile, I'm writing books and I'm, you know, when I talk about this process, the process of writing fiction, I talk about it and, and say that characters come to me as voices, right? And um, one reader at an event asked me, do you mean that literally? And um, it turns out that this reader's son heard voices as though externally with his ear. 
and found it very disturbing. Yeah. Right? And I explained that, no, no, my voices, the fictional voices that I hear are more internal. They're inside my head. But I have had this other experience, too. Yeah. He, uh, he gets professional help, and it's, I don't want to give anything away, um, maybe not of much help. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. I mean, his, his uh, therapist is, you know, his, his psychiatrist is very well-intentioned. She has been schooled in a certain diagnostic practice, and um, so she really tries to help him. Um, but I think that ultimately, perhaps it helps him a little bit. Certainly, it's good that she's there and is tracking him. On the other hand, the kind of help Benny needs is not really that. Yeah. He needs help from uh, a different kind of community of people. Benny finds something, uh, a kind of solace, a kind of understanding at the library, uh, which is capitalized in the book. Yes, of course, because the library is a very important character in all of our lives. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell us what he finds there. There there are a group of people that um, from the outside wouldn't seem to be the kind of people he needs to spend time with, but... Well, you know, he he goes to the library seeking refuge. You know, the world is just too cacophonous for him. And the library is, of course, a place that's filled with objects, but they speak in their library voices. And so Benny finds this very soothing. He's brought to the library by a a young woman who he has met for the first time in a dream. And then he meets her, or at least he thinks it's her, in reality on the psych ward where he's he's also sent and she leaves him little clues that he follows, and then he finds his way to the library. And she's she's part of a, a group of people who hang out at the library. You could even say that they live in the library. They inhabit it. Um, and arguably the most important character that he meets at the library is the book itself. It's the book of form and emptiness. And the book starts to speak to Benny, and they ha- start having this this dialogue. So the entire book is structured as a dialogue between the book, who is narrating Benny into being, right, and Benny himself. I gather from the acknowledgments that you uh, you had what I'll call the benefit of professional advice in, yes. yeah. in trying to depict a lot of this. What did you mm-hmm. uh, What did you learn? I learned a lot. I was curious, um, you know, because I'd had this experience myself of hearing a voice that sounded very real, but no one else could hear it, you know. And it happens that I have a good friend who is um, a psychologist who has done a lot of work with the hearing voices community. So I was introduced to the hearing voices community. And one of the things I realized is that this experience of hearing voices is a lot more common than, than, than we normally think about. If you tell a psychiatrist, you know, that you hear voices, chances are it will immediately be pathologized and, you mm-hmm. know, and medicated. On the other hand, there are so many people like, I mean, Gandhi reported hearing voices. Freud talks about voices. Jung talks about voices. Um, so I think that one of the things that I was very interested in was to really look at what we call, for example, normal on, and what we call pathological, what we call neurotic, and then what we call creative. And so to really look at this as a spectrum and to, I suppose, sort of widen the bandwidth of what we might call normal. You're also a Zen Buddhist priest, I gather. That's right, I am. So is it just too easy to read 
this book, for example, and, and see the novelist as Zen Buddhist priest or Zen Buddhist priest as novelist? How, how much does it inform what you do and what you write, who you are? At this point, I've been practicing Zen for long enough that I, I think it sort of is who I am. You know, I don't really think about Zen as outside me. That, and that wasn't the case, perhaps, at the beginning. At the beginning, I, I very much felt that that a writing practice was different from my Zen practice. But now I see it as a kind of a continuum. So, in fact, in this book, there is a, a character who is a, a Zen Buddhist nun. And in my last book as well, in A Tale for the Time Being, there was also a character who was a Zen Buddhist nun. So in that sense, of course, the, the Zen Buddhist nuns take advantage of the page time and, you know, talk about Zen philosophy in a very overt mm-hmm. way. You know, that same philosophy was contained, I think, in my previous books. You know, it's, it's a philosophy of um, interconnectedness, of interdependence, interbeing. And really, when you think about it, that's what novels are. All novels, whether they're written by Buddhists or not, are all about relationships. They're all about the ways that people are not independent of each other, that they depend on each other. That's what makes conflict, and that's what makes a story. The Book of Form and Emptiness uh, is the new novel by Ruth Uzeki. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.